There are three words uh, that the Gospels kind of use to describe the works of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they key on, key on really a, a couple of different words. Uh, when Jesus does something miraculous, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say, well, it's a miracle, right? You know this word, this language. Uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes they even use the word works. Uh, they use another, there's a Greek word dunamis. It means power. It's like a like a, it's a monster truck pool kind of word. You know what I'm saying? Like it's so like enormous. It's, it's this big, and so these things like water to wine in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are miracles or works or power. But if you listen carefully in John, John never uses any of those words. John uses a really specific word. He calls them signs. And if you, uh, some people, when they read the Gospel of John, they divide the Gospel into really two books. There's the book of glory, which is the second half, and the first half, which we're beginning today in chapter two, is called the book of signs. So since we're talking about signs, uh, I want to share a few of my favorite church signs with you. Have you guys seen some of these? All right, Zach, go ahead and show that first one. Have you seen these signs from God that looks like you actually did ask for a sign? All right, go on to the next one. Too cold to change the sign, the message inside. <laughs> Have you seen that? All right, keep going. Choose the bread of life or you are toast. Can I just say I'm so glad we don't have one of these signs that somebody has to come up with a... This one says, uh, I don't know why some people change churches. What difference does it make which one you stay home from? That's not us. Uh, this is my favorite. Uh, do you know what hell is? Come here, our preacher. I don't know why you think that's so funny. So signs in John uh, are, are just this, these things that, that they always point to something else. Um, a sign in John indicates the presence of something else. And remember what I told you. John isn't so, con so concerned with convincing people that Jesus is human. John is always interested in convincing people that Jesus is more than human. And each sign, uh, you, you guys know Clark Kent, the old, like, you know who Clark Kent is? Each sign in John is, is when uh, Clark Kent throws his glasses down and begins to pull back his shirt and his suit to reveal something else underneath. Are you with me? Um, in the fourth gospel, Jesus doesn't perform miracles. And, and in fact, if, if your text says miracle somewhere, just, just go ahead and mark it out. He performs signs. And in the book of signs, the first half of John, Jesus performs seven signs. And each sign is kind of a builds on the one before. So each sign, the, the very first one is water to wine. The first sign is, is, you know, it's like, okay, not that I can do that, but I mean, that seems easier than raising somebody from the dead. So each sign, it, it's, it has this rising action. It, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's intended to indicate the presence of something else. But what? The author wants you to see that there's something beneath the surface. But what is it? So I want to talk about this first sign. And actually, I want to talk about three scenes in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 today. But they, hopefully, they all kind of fit together. The very first sign is what you just saw, water to wine. You guys know the story? Familiar with the story? In uh, chapter 2, verse 11, here's what John says. 
He says, this miraculous sign, all right, so I'm going to stop you already. We use the New Living Translation. Uh, the New Living Translation is a translation specifically for, for people who are new in the faith, who are young in the faith. It uses language that's, that's easy and familiar. So, like, I know some of you say, well, I'm a King James Version person. Well, good for you. Okay, like, <laughs> um, we're not all. Uh, the King James Version is, like, 13th grade reading level. I don't know if you know that. Like, so if you hand the KJV to somebody who's new in the faith, unless they have a really like high reading level, it's not going to make sense. So we use New Living Translation because, hey, we actually want to communicate. We have lots of folks that are, are new in the faith. And so that's why we're here. And so that's also why, uh, although it's wrong, the New Living Translation puts the word, this miraculous sign. So if you've got a, a highlighter or a marker or a pen and yours says miracle or something there, just go ahead and mark that out. Yeah, I, I, that's okay. I give you permission. Uh, it's not in the text. What it says is this sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus, remember what we talked about, Clark Kent, right? Revealed his glory. And what was the result? The disciples see beneath the surface and they begin to believe in him. So, Let's talk about this, this sign and, and why it's important. Um, the, let's talk about the theology of a wedding feast and, and why it's important as the first sign. Um, one of the first thing I want you to notice is that uh, Jesus' mom gets very involved, right? Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. All right, so this would have been a big, like, wedding feast lasted days or, or even up to a week, and to run out of something would have been real embarrassment on the, on the host kind of family, right? And so Mary is tuned into this and says, hey, they, they have no more wine, and she taps her son on the shoulder and says, why don't you do something about this? So every Christmas we sing this song, and it's super, it, it is the most annoying Christmas song to me on the planet. It's Mary, Did You Know? Like, you know that song? You're already singing it in your head right now. I'm not going to try. Um, so John chapter 2, Mary knew, right? She knew. She already knew that uh, not only from her own, like, song before Jesus was even born, but she knew that her son, Jesus, had the power to do something about this. She already knew beneath the surface that he was capable. And what I love about this is Jesus is almost like, look, it ain't my time yet. And she says, I'm your mother. You're going to do this. Like, it doesn't matter. You, son of God, I'm your mom, and you're going to do what I say. Um, so, yeah, uh, theology of the party is that Mary did know but also you should just see that Jesus likes to party. He does. It's fun. It was full of joy and laughter. It was a celebration. Jesus uses a, he, he'll talk about a celebration, a wedding even as his second coming later. And, and the wedding feast, like this, this great moment of, of new beginning and new life and bringing everyone in and everyone sharing in it together is, is really an important symbol right here at the very beginning of John. It's a symbol of the Messiah's arrival. And it's also the result of, it, the result is that the disciples believed in him. And uh, later in chapter two and verse 23, it says, because of the signs Jesus did, Many began 
to trust in him. So there's lots of great things when we look at it, this wedding ceremony and the water to wine. But, but really, the key, the key thing that I think for us to focus on and remember comes in verse 10. Um, the master of ceremonies uh, is, is apparently like, every, apparently everybody in the party is clued in that, hey, the wine is out, party's over, right? Until... Jesus gets involved with the servants. He takes these, like these are really, did you notice how big these jars are? Six jars and they hold like 30 gallons each. It, there's also some important symbolism that these jobs were, uh, these jars were used for ceremonial cleansing. You'll see some of that coming later. So six jars, 30 gallons. Everybody thinking that the party is over when the reality is that hadn't even started yet. And I think that's exactly the, the sentiment of the master of ceremonies. So one of the servants brings him this wine. And look what he says. The host always serves the best wine first. He said, then when everyone has had a lot to drink, I'll let you interpret that however you want. Um, he brings out the less expensive wine. But, but I think this last sentence is, is really key for us. But you have kept the best until now. Maybe you've heard that, that expression, you've saved the best for last. Or another way of saying it is, the best is yet to come. So think about the importance of John beginning his gospel and this sign that Jesus does. It's a sign that reminds us that the best is yet to come. We're going to talk about wine a little bit more. Uh, you didn't see it on screen, and if you're reading along with us, you can, you'll see these other scenes. Immediately after this scene, uh, Jesus, uh, it, it says that Jesus goes to the temple for Passover, and uh, it's important to know that, that the temple was like a really big deal. Like this was, uh, it, it was called Herod's temple. Herod actually, like he cut the top off of a mountain to build this temple. Like, that's what he did. I know, it, like, like, this was the wonder of the world in their time. He cut the top off a mountain, he, and he built such a massive temple on it using marble and gold and all of these. His, really, Herod, his goal was to try and outdo Solomon, to, to build a better temple than Solomon. So you know how wealthy Solomon was. Herod's temple is better. It's bigger and bolder and brighter in every single way. Herod's temple is covered in so much marble that, remember, he cut the top off a mountain and built the temple on the top. It's covered in so much marble that people said it looked like a snow-capped mountain. Do you get the, scene, the sense of this? And it took 46 years. I think that's what it says. 46 years to build this temple, Right? And so Jesus shows up at the temple and the religious leaders come up to him in this, in this very next scene after the water to wine. They, they show up and the religious leaders say, if God gave you authority to do all of these signs, like if God's given you authority to do this, give us some sort of sign. Give us some sort of sign. And so this is going to be really consistent throughout John. Uh, everybody is asking for a sign from Jesus. And what's really cool is that like, as we get to see this as a reader who's kind of floating over the surface. You see that what's going to happen later, Jesus is going to feed 5,000 people, right? With two loaves and five fish. He's going to do this incredible, amazing sign, right? And immediately after that, the religious leader is going to come up to him and say, you know, we'd really believe in you if you would just show us some sign. 
And it's like, And that's exactly what's happening here. Well, if God's given you this authority, why don't you just give us a sign? And Jesus just tells them, remember, sitting in this amazing, like, snow-capped mountain temple, amazing, better than Solomon, took 46 years to build. Jesus says, well, why don't you just destroy, just tear this whole place down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they're, yeah, right. Now, of course, he's not talking about the temple. Who's he talking about? But remember, we talk, even last week, we talked about Jesus referencing Jacob. Jacob's this guy that goes to sleep and has this dream of heaven and earth. It's, he has a dream of heaven and earth meeting. That, you know, the Sistine Chapel, you know that, that painting where God and Adam are like this? That's the dream he has, like heaven and earth meeting. And at the end of the dream, Jacob wakes up and says, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Like, you know this? He says, surely God's presence is here, and I didn't know it. And he named that place. You remember what he named it? He named it Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The home of God. What's the temple? The temple was supposed to be the home of God, right? And now Jesus is saying, just give me three days. Remember what what the master of ceremony said? You say the best for last. Jesus says, just give me three days. Just give me three days. And I'll show you the real house of God. He says, the best is yet to come. Now in the very next scene, if you've been reading along, you've been following this. In the next scene, we introduce a character, a character named Nicodemus. This is one of the only things in, like, Nicodemus is only in John. You don't get Nicodemus anywhere. And, and Nicodemus is one of the religious elite. Like, he's in, the, he's in the high government of the faith in this place. Um, he's a Jewish leader. And Nicodemus, an undercover of darkness, because he can't be seen in the daylight. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in chapter 3, verse 2, and says, We know that God has sent you to teach us your signs, not miraculous, X that out. Your signs are evidence that God is with you. And Nicodemus is half right, right? Um, he says, your signs are evidence that God is with you. Well, he's, he's getting warmer. He's, he's close. But the signs are evidence that God is with you. The signs are evidence that remember who is under the surface, right? The signs are evidence that he is God. What happens next in, uh, in chapter 3, I'll let you read it for yourself, is a uh, uh, and and the, way, the way John kind of works is that he'll do a sign and then he'll kind of give a discourse and kind of talk about the sign a little bit. So he'll feed the 5,000 and then he'll give a, a discourse about the bread of life. He's going to uh, uh, give offer the Samaritan woman uh, the water of life and then talk to her about water and real water that sustains, right? And so he's going to do the same thing here after this very beginning sign. Nicodemus says, man, this... Surely this is a sign that God is with you. And Jesus is going to say, okay, how can I explain this to you? How how can I bring you into this thing 
how can I introduce you to the idea that the best is yet to come? Remember, this is only the beginning. And Jesus says, uh, it's one of my favorite discourses. Jesus tells Nicodemus, well, you just have to be born again. And Nicodemus asks one of my favorite questions in all of scripture. How can an old man like me climb up inside my mom? Like, wait, this is way too graphic, Nicodemus. Like, why? You know, you don't have any, like, (laughs) but that's exactly what he asked. Remember, this is going to happen a lot in John. Like, And Jesus gives this whole discourse. I'll I'll let you read it for yourself. It's about verse 11 through 21. And uh, Jesus gives a belief speech. That's what it is. Uh, Belief is incredibly important in John. All right, so in the same way that John doesn't use the word miracle or power or works, but uses signs, in the same way, John never really uses the word faith. Instead, John uses the word believe. And this is an important distinction for all of us. John says, the reason I wrote this is so that you would believe. Even at the end of John, you're going to see this scene with a guy named Thomas, right? You remember Thomas and he needed to, so that you would believe. And in John, the word believe or the word belief is a verb. Now, I'm not very good at grammar. You guys already know that. But I know that 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 it is not some sort of like um, cognitive thing, right? Believe in John is not just something you think about and, and you know, it's not something that you just kind of hold, oh, let me just, hmm, let me just think about that. That's not what John is talking about. Belief is an action in John. And almost always in John, it's followed by another Greek word, which means into. And so, Jesus gives a believe into speech. That's what he says. I, I want you to believe into this thing. It's, it's an investment. It's a movement. Uh, it, it, sometimes it manifests itself in obedience or following. Like, I want you to believe forward. Does that make sense? Like, I want you to believe like, like this. And what's great about this is he says, you know, really, this is this belief, this movement, this action, this believing into is, is I want you to believe into the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives them, gives Nicodemus this incredible belief speech. All right, so how do you tap into this whole thing, this the best is yet to come. How do you get into that whole thing and and where does it start? And Jesus is gonna say, well, you're gonna need to be born again. And that comes from believing into. And it's probably the one verse that every single one of you in this speech, in this belief speech, Jesus uses the one verse that all of you already know. It's John chapter three, verse 16. You know this verse? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who, what's the word? So that everyone who believes in him won't have to settle for water, but will have eternal life. It will move into something better. 
a fundamental core idea of this whole thing of believing into Jesus is, is somehow, in some way, being discontent with the way things are. Like, let me ask you, like, do you think this is all there is? Like, is this it? Is this all you get? Like, have you reached the height of fulfillment and, and joy and meaning in life? Have you already got it? Or is there some yearning, craving in you for something better? Jesus says, says new life is possible. New birth is possible. New future is possible. And it requires not sort of like not not some sort of doctrine or or dogma or just this kind of it's not a cognitive process, but it's action. And Jesus says, all of that, that new life and new birth and new future, he says, that's me. That's me. That's why I'm here. That's why I've come. And his invitation, is, and it really is an invitation to Nicodemus, is the exact same he invites. When he gives this belief speech to Nicodemus, we're supposed to stop being the reader for a minute and come into the story and sit right next to Nicodemus and hear Jesus tell us the same thing. Like what really needs to happen is if you want to enter in this thing, you need to be born again. And I invite you to believe into Jesus. In chapter 315, Jesus says, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. To believe into, to move into the person of Jesus Christ is to believe that the best is yet to come. And Jesus invites Nicodemus into this, and he invites us today, invites you to make that choice today, to give yourself to him, not just in cognition, but with movement and action. Are you with me? All right. Can we talk about something fun? I want to go back to this, this first sign. What was the first sign? What was it? Let's talk about wine. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not pointing anybody out. Uh, I, I want to talk about wine in this way. Um, what's tomorrow? Yeah, MLK Junior Day. Um, and, and I asked this question, uh, did, like, and, and I don't mean this in an offensive way at all, but there are some in here that probably had the opportunity to hear him in person. Uh, is there anybody in here, anybody in here want to be brave enough to say that I was there and I heard it? Because I know, I know it was possible. One of my favorite places to go here on, uh, uh, in Nashville is the Scarrett Bennett Center. And at the Scarab Bennett, there's amazing chapel in there. And it was this great kind of open place. And I know, like, I've gone and spent some time praying there. And I've gone and I've stood on the stage right where Martin Luther King Jr. gave sermons and teachings. And it's awesome. So tomorrow is, uh, is, is MLK Day. And, and I encourage you, like, if, if your kids don't know who this is, like, we need really, they need some education. Uh, I, 
Uh, you can pull it up on your phone, download the I Have a Dream speech. Everybody listen to it one time tomorrow, right? Don't just take the day off. Listen to the speech. It's worth it. And I bring up the speech and, and, and Martin Luther King, it's, it's, it's really a perfect tie-in because in that speech, uh, he was a pastor and he always included scripture and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. But in his speech, he quotes Isaiah and all of these others. But in that speech, in one of his favorite books to quote from the Bible was the book of Amos. So Amos is a, Amos is a weird prophet. Uh, and, and in Amos, like, if, if God sends you a prophet, it's never a good thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you've really been on the wrong side of things for a while now, and God sends you a prophet. And, and Amos is no different. Amos is sent by God to, to talk to the people of God because they have really gotten sideways. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're doing all of these kind of things. Like, they have, begun, they have made God so angry that God, in, you can look this up, God tells the people through Amos, he says, I hate your church. I detest your sacrifices. That's what God says. Like, dude, they, they have made God mad. Are you, are you with me? This is what's happening in Amos. And so the first part of Amos is this kind of like, hey, you've really messed this thing up as good as you can mess this up. But there is a call in Amos for the people to turn. There is a call in Amos for the people to turn their ways, to change their ways, to stop going in this direction, to repent and go in a whole new direction. And it, it's all keyed around one verse. And it was one of Martin Luther King's favorite verses. It's Amos chapter 5, verse 24. It's in the I Have a Dream speech. And Martin Luther King says, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And it is a call for a turn. It is a call for a new life. It's a call for something better, right? Isn't that what the whole speech is about? I have a dream. Of a, there's a better future out there for us. And God responds at the end of Amos. The people have sinned and fallen away. Amos calls them back to justice and righteousness on purpose. And God says at the end of Amos, I don't want you to miss this, chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. At the end of Amos, God says, if you will pursue justice and righteousness, if, if you will pursue who I am, he says, the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Think about that. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet what? I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their let me give you another example. It comes straight from the book of Joel. Nobody quotes Joel, but this is a good one. In Joel chapter three, he says, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, live in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy forever and foreign armies will never conquer her again. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and water will fill the stream beds of Judah and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple, the house of God. Making any connections? Watering the arid valley of Acacias. 
And all that to say is with the restoration of the people of Israel, when God's people move into alignment with him and his will, when God's people believe into him, there's harmony with creation, there's harmony with God. And what you are supposed to see is, how, how much wine, how much, how much water did Jesus turn to wine, do you remember? Like more, more than 100 gallons. More than 100 gallons. What you are supposed to see when you read about wine and its sweetness is the super abundance of God's blessing. And I love that that's where John starts, right? Did they really need 100 gallons or more? You know what I'm saying? Like, what kind of party was this? But what you're supposed to see is mountains that flow with sweet wine. It's a promise of, of great blessings. It's the same way that uh, uh, Matthew begins, Matthew records Jesus' great sermon on the mount with the word, with the Beatitudes, which it begins with a single word. You know what that single word is? Blessed. Jesus could have started a whole bunch of ways. Right? He could have started by pointing out all the negative things. Like, he have, here's the laundry list of everything you've done wrong. He could have started out with condemnation or criticism, but how does he begin? Super abundance of blessing. And the wine is supposed to trigger the people's minds and trigger our minds too of the sweetness and richness of God's blessing. Like, this is what Jesus brings. Do you, do you see that and do you sense that? So today, wine is a sign of God's blessing in the Old Testament and sweetness. So today, uh, we have done something slightly different, and I'm not exactly sure how to introduce this. Um, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of communion, and we have the table set up around the room. And normally, uh, we use the very holy Welches <laughs> in our tables. And I will tell you that uh, the side tables, the two tables, have the holy Welches. And you are more than welcome to partake of the sweetness of God's blessings via Welches grape juice. But if you want to be a scriptural Christian... <laughs> um, this center table uh, has been uh, richly supplied with grapes that are a little bit more mature. Is that fair to say? Uh, the center table is, uh, it's not sponsored by Arrington, but it's another local uh, a vineyard here in town. Um, and we do this, like, like, I know maybe I'm making a joke, and maybe I'm making fun, and um, But I, I just want to remind you that, and, and maybe, maybe we as Christians need to remind others that to believe into Jesus is really a sweet thing. To believe into him, like, like maybe we just need that reminder of the sweetness, the goodness of God.
And so we, have, we do have wine at this center table, and I encourage you to, to come. And if you take two or three cups, I'm not going to say anything. It's fine. <laughs> but I want to remind you of the goodness of God, and I want you to see in John that that's the first sign. The first sign is a sign of abundance. The first sign is a sign of blessing. I love what Psalm 34 says. Psalm 34, verse 8, simply says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day and for your word. And uh, uh, man, God, may, uh, may it not be something that we just kind of chew on in our heads, but Father God, may it be something that inspires us and moves us to action. Let us believe with our hands and feet. Father God, maybe there are those here today that they simply need to be reminded of your goodness, that, that you're good, not just in some other way, in some other time, in some other place, but right now, Father God, through your son, Jesus Christ, you offer sweetness and richness and fulfillment and blessing. And that is the purpose of your son, Jesus, and that's why you sent him. And so, Father God, let us taste for ourselves your goodness. We love you, Father. Bless us as we enter into the sacred space. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,